Good morning. Glad you're here with us today. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Acts 4. We're going to start in uh, verse 32. Um, so if you're with us online or in person, you caught us still kind of in the beginning um, of a conversation walking through the book of Acts. And last week, we left this bit out. And so now we're coming back to it. And if you've been reading ahead, you know it's a doozy. Um, so if you've been alive uh, for any amount of time, you've experienced what's known as being disillusioned. Right? Everyone can relate to the experience of being disillusioned. Most of the time, uh, we look at this experience of being disillusioned as a loss of dreams, a loss of innocence, and we kind of pine for the days before we knew the surprising, maybe hurtful truth about ABC, you know? We become disillusioned with a job, you know, that we thought would be amazing, disillusioned with men, relationships, marriage, politics, all these things have the capacity to disillusion us, right? Things in which we have high hopes for, and let us down. They don't live up to the expectations that we set for them. And oftentimes, um, this, we end up responding to being disillusioned by um, lowering our expectations, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? After all, you know, it is an illusion uh, that we're talking about. Uh, magicians use illusions to trick us. So maybe there's a positive aspect of being disillusions, having our uh, expectations checked by reality, or at least in theory, maybe is a good thing, right? However, when we often experience being disillusioned in life, we throw out the baby with the bathwater. You guys know what I'm talking about? So if we thought that marriage was gonna be the thing that just satisfies us and fulfills us, right? And then you get married and that's not your experience. And so, you know, you just check out of the relationship. You know, you keep showing up, but uh, your expectations that the relationship will in any way be hopeful or meaningful or fulfilling, you just kind of check out, you know, or worse, <laughs> you know, uh, you allow your wounds to blanket all of reality. So Dylan wasn't just a jerk that I divorced, but now all men are jerks and marriage as an institution is a jerk or, or a, a sham, you know, <laughs> jerk, worthless, not sacred rather, you know, um, and, and you kind of blanket all of reality with your experience. Now this, why am I talking about this, right? This experience of being disillusioned can happen with almost anything, anything, right? One of the things, side note, one of the things that make us uniquely Christian is that as Christians, number one, we're not surprised when things aren't perfect. We would say, yeah, the Bible calls it sin. It's been talking about that for a long time, right? Not only are we not surprised, but even in the presence of sin and imperfections and dreams that have been broken, it's the Christian that still can press into hope that God can redeem and restore and that one day redemption will be final, right? So Christians have hope as a pillar, even in the midst of disillusionment, even in the midst of sorrow and heartache, Christians don't mourn as those without hope. What Christians believe is that man was made for heaven and heaven is stamped on our hearts, right? And therefore, every time we long for something to fulfill us, that joy that we're really longing for, Christians would say, what you're really longing for is God himself, heaven itself, right? The problem is when we go around uh, expecting our marriage or our job or other things, we put the expectations of God on them and, and it wreaks havoc. Anyway, the point is this. 
all of that experience, being disillusioned, all of that stuff also applies to the church. Okay, so there are God-ordained institutions, things that God has made for the flourishing of man, all right? Things that are designed to protect him, to lead him or her, to guide him or make them feel safe. An, an example of this is a family. Okay, family is an institution God has ordained for our flourishing. And yet, when sin enters, when imperfection, when brokenness enters, what was made for our flourishing ends up in our experience making for our wounds and our hurt and our disillusionment. We tracking? Same thing can happen in church. The institution of the church at its birth made for the flourishing of men, made for the flourishing of women, right? They protect us, guide us, and yet, Many of us, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you would be able to raise your hand and say, what was made for my flourishing has ended up hurting me and wounded me. Just randomly, let's just throw it out there. How many of you have been in Christian, in churches for a long time and have experienced a sense of woundedness, hurt, or betrayal in church? Okay, so just look around. All right, so what, what we're, okay, you're quick with that, aren't you? <laughs> what we are all saying, admitting to, is something that was made for our good, made for our flourishing, can, when sin enters it, make for our woundedness and betrayal and hurt, okay? Because sin enters it. So, I mean, family, a great example. We talked about that. You know, just talk to a cop who has to respond to domestic abuse, talk to a social worker, and they can testify to how dark things can get that were originally made for our flourishing, Right? Sin and brokenness enter and all that stuff can apply to the church. Right, Made for our flourishing and can end up with our woundedness. So despite the beauty and the glory uh, that the church was made for, right, it only takes, or, or we see at the beginning, it only takes a couple months for sin to enter in and begin to corrupt what was made for flourishing. Now, I always, I always like to point this out. I always want this to kind of uh, remind us of this. Um, I don't care what church you go to, okay? Uh, there are no perfect churches. It just, just doesn't exist. And then if you go to it, you ruin it, right? It doesn't exist, right? And if you're like, oh man, this place is awesome. Just give us a couple months. Just give us a couple months. Seriously, I will let you down. We will let you down. There is no such thing. Everyone just breathe, right? Oh, whew, good, right? There's no such thing as a perfect church, right? And I have no problem saying that because our hope isn't in finding a perfect church. Our hope's in a perfect savior, right? And it's even why we kind of joke about a pretty good church, right? Kind of relieving the pressure we all feel to perform for each other, right? So um, church is made of broken people who are clinging to Christ. Now, all that being said, if, ever, if any church was ever killing it, like totally killing it, right? It was the church in Jerusalem that we've been reading about, right? I mean, none in need, miracles happening, generous, glad living, great grace upon them, right? And it's not very hard to romanticize the early church, and many people do. And we think surely among miracles in the supernatural, everyone is equally as holy and loving and honest. But what we see now and all throughout scripture, like think of Exodus, even witnessing, and if you've not read ahead, you're like, what are you talking about? Hold on, I'll get to it. Even witnessing signs and wonders and miracles doesn't foolproof your heart against deceit and hypocrisy. Okay, I need to say that again because I don't think we're quite awake yet. 
even witnessing signs and wonders and miracles does not foolproof your heart against deceit and hypocrisy. We're gonna come back to that because it's a massive point here, right? The whole community, y'all, in the early Jerusalem church seemingly baptized with the Holy Spirit, right? Regularly witnessing miracles in the name of Jesus. And yet what we're gonna find in this particular portion of scripture is corruption, deceit, and an overwhelming compulsion to look more spiritual than you really are. That's the crux of what we're gonna see today. So yay, if you came to church, awesome, right? So if you're not a Christian or if you're new, let me just give you some rationale as to why we're talking about what we're talking about today. We believe that the Bible is God-ordained, all right? And everything in it is intentionally there for human flourishing and for the glory of God, right? So we don't golden corral the Bible around here. We don't just go and pick the bits we like and leave the rest and push it over to the side, right? And if, you, if, you, if today's the first day you're tuning in with us, it's a doozy. Okay, uh, so my hope for you is that you don't check out. Okay, you'll hear me out to the end. And that being said, if by the end, this is for everyone, if by the end of this, I've somehow convinced you that like, oh, that makes perfect sense, then I've not been honest. Okay, because this baffles me. All right, are we big enough to say that around here? Open the scripture and say, I don't get it. All right, cool. Just making sure. Didn't know. All right, so let's get to the text. Okay, here we go. And maybe all of that nonsense that I just said will make a little bit more sense as we begin to read. Now, starting in verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. So this is the first time we begin to see some organizational efforts to relieve um, the burden of poverty within the church. Right? So now it's not just people sharing with people, it's people selling things and giving money to the apostles and saying, hey man, do, do what it with you want, right? Okay. Um, thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, not a Jerusalem um, native, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 5 verse 1. But a man named Ananias and, and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down. It's biblical for died. And breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Yeah, I think so. The young man Rose, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval, about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yeah, so much. She lied too. 
But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. Let's pray. <laughs> um, Holy Spirit, come. This is particularly difficult for us who feel entitled um, and a sense of ownership over our own lives, Lord. Um, this is particularly challenging scripture for us to wrestle with in our day and age. So I just ask God that you'd have mercy on us, that you'd give us insight into something that is really confusing for us. It's very discomforting, Lord. Um, so Holy Spirit, we cling to the authority of your word to give life. And we ask now that you'd grant us wisdom and insight into your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you know, to get this, we had to pick it up at the end of four. So I'm just gonna kind of retell a little bit just so we're all there. Um, this, this man named, I'm gonna put a little, I'm gonna insert some perspective now, okay? This man named Barnabas, um, who would become a pillar in the early church. Barnabas would become Paul, who Saul become Paul, hadn't happened yet, would become his traveling buddy. Like, dude is legit, goes on all the missional efforts with uh, Paul, right? But his name was Joseph, uh, before this, and he had such a heart to encourage and build up other people, the apostles nicknamed him Barney, which means son of encouragement, right? So I don't know if you've ever just had a person, <laughs> not like the purple dinosaur, I don't know if you've ever just had a person that's just super encouraging, like you just love being around them, like I want people to think that about me, right? But he was, so, his, his characters, his characteristics of generosity and encouragement were so strong, they were like, dude, you're not, you're Barnabas, man, you're son of encouragement, right? Nickname this dude. So he leads the way in this kind of radical generosity in the church, right? Brings it to the apostles, says, I don't care how to use it, here's all the money, use it as you see fit, right? And as the early church is becoming more organized, this, the community is starting to create structures and pathways with which to meet the needs of the poor. And then it gets really strange, okay? We're told about this husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, and they do the same thing. But something is off about it all, okay? Something is wrong. And either through a kind of divine knowledge or just like common sense real estate value, <laughs> Peter, it becomes clear to him that someone is lying, okay? And Peter's questioning really helps us understand what's happening in this wildly confusing and discomforting text, right? He basically says, that was your land, man. Like you didn't need to sell that. And then after you sold it, all that money was yours. So why are you lying that you sold it for less than you really sold it for and keeping some of the money and acting like you're giving all of it? You're not lying to me, you're lying to God, right? And he's pointing out, right, implying that the money that's given to the church as an organization, they're the apostles in this, is the Lord's money, okay? And then, so he says, you're not lying to me, you're lying to God, first of all. I'm just a, you know, messenger or whatever in this deal. Um, and the early church was going to then use that money for the purposes of God around them, which for them was meeting the needs of the poor. So that opens up a whole other conversation about how the church uses its resources and it's in our day and age, but we don't have time to talk about that. But Peter's point is this, y'all, that's totally unnecessary. 
Like, why did you, it was your land. It was your, no, one's, no one's making you do this, right? And you did it and you lied about it. So he's, he's why? Like, why lie? Like, what was their sin? Like, what was the big deal? What was wrong with this whole picture, right? Why on earth did God strike them dead? Uh, this is befuddling to me, right? I mean, isn't God supposed to be like loving and slow to anger and quick to love, right? I mean, is anyone else struggling with this as a Christian when you read it? I mean, is the takeaway from this, all right, guys, if you don't give all your money to the church, God's gonna strike you dead. Is that the takeaway? Is if so, let's pass the bucket, right? Let's like, get, you know, <laughs> no, that's not a takeaway, right? Let's, you know, let's, let's get everyone scared out of their mind and then Keep passing the buckets until we get what we want. And you know, y'all, y'all know, to the church's shame, they have in, in the past used scripture like this to manipulate and exploit as a means of salvation for people. If you want to be saved, you better give all your money. You might be struck dead like Ananias and Sapphira. Like maybe God will save you. Better give a little more just to be sure. You know that's happened in the church. And shame, shame. All right? That is not the takeaway. So what was the sin of this couple? Well, let's think about it, right? I mean, Peter's questioning helps us get to the crux of it. So let's just imagine ourselves in a place not too dissimilar from this, amongst a community where things are happening and maybe it's exciting to be a part. And you see this dude go from normal guy to like total rock star in the community with one move. I mean, Barney, he's a stranger. No one knew him. I didn't, hadn't come up in the thing until, until now. He sells this piece of land, gives it all to the disciples, and everyone's just like, oh, man. Goes from a total nobody to a spiritual rock star just like that. So you see it happen, right? And you're thinking, oh, man. I mean, now he's like rubbing shoulders with the, with the, the 12, you know? Out there, it's amazing. And then you think, you know what? We got some land. We could probably sell it, but then reality kicks in and you're like, oh wait, that's our retirement plan, right? And, you're, and then you're like, you kind of, kind of anxiety starts filling you and you think, man, if we give that away, who's gonna take care of us, right? So, but then you just, then they see Barney. Yeah, everyone's, everyone thinks he's awesome. I want people to think I'm awesome. I wanna be loved. I wanna be admired. I wanna be respected. I want recognition, right? And so, I mean, who doesn't want that, right? And so they come up with a plan. Listen, we can sell this land 400K, right? Let's say that we just sold it for 200 and everyone will think we're awesome. We're gonna come up and give 200K, all right? And then we'll keep 200. And so we'll have our retirement plan. We'll be taken care of. I mean, the more you think about it, the more reasonable this plan seems. Did, did anyone else, something just click in your mind, say, oh, that seems, that seems like a, maybe a good idea. I don't know, but the problem is, the jokers lied about it. They said, we sold this for 200 and they kept 200 for themselves, right? It was premeditated and they together committed to a false narrative about how much they sold the land for. So do you know what it's called when you want to be known as being more mature, more ahead, more spiritual than you are? Do you know what it's called when you want to be known as more ahead than you really are. It's called hypocrisy. The impulse to want to be known as generous when you are not generous, that's called hypocrisy. So Peter's question helps us identify what the issue is. He says, man, that was yours. 
You didn't need to give it to the church, but you lied. And the crux of the lie was this differentiation in how much they sold it for so that everyone else would think they are more spiritual, more generous than they really are. It was for spiritual reputation that Ananias and Sapphira made this exchange, all right? And all of a sudden, man, (laughs) when I sat with this, I was like, man, that seems way closer to home, right? I mean, because this is church. No one fibs. So people think we're awesome, right? (laughs) This is church. No one does that. No, we all know the truth that self-preservation and looking out for number one can put on Christian clothes, can it? And that's exactly what was happening here. So this is hard for us. At the birth of the church, right? All of the good that we see beginning at the birth of the church, all of the Holy Spirit, all of the miraculous powers, all those things that we see, we also find this at the birth of the church, hypocrisy. (laughs) Seems like it's been with us for a long time, right? So y'all, humanity, religious or not, man, integrity seems to be a trait that we struggle to walk in, does it not? It's why when someone says they're not a Christian because all Christians are hypocrites, I say, yeah, you're going to fit right in, man, you know? Like, so just like in Genesis, it only takes a couple chapters for sin to enter and corrupt. So too with the beginning of the church, it only takes a couple chapters for sin and hypocrisy to enter and corrupt. And what we find is the irresistible urge to have people think we are more spiritual or more holy than we really are has, all, has been with the church since the beginning. And think about it, it's so easy, isn't it? Because in church, we're talking about unseen things, you know, unseen motives. And, and so it's so easy to lie about stuff like that, isn't it? Lie about the state of your heart, lie about the purity of your heart, because who will ever know? Well, apparently God, right? But of course, That reality hasn't stopped plenty of people in the church throughout history from gaining places of reputation and respect and authority by such means, has it? All right? So I remember a mentor one time telling me, he said, Chris, he said, you're gifted, you're talented. He said, never let your influence grow higher than your character grows deep. It's a very profound thing. Never let your influence grow higher than your character grows deep and your character can sustain because if you seek out influence and reputation without having the depth of character to sustain it, you end up like that massive tree you saw that fell over when the rains came, right? It grew up and large and big and it dominated the landscape, but landscape, but it didn't have the roots to sustain it. So when the adversity of life eventually and inevitably comes, it does not have the strength or depth of roots to maintain through the storm. So he said, never, you know, have you seen a top heavy tree? Right, so what he's talking about when these Christian people, Christian leaders, especially seek places of authority and reputation, and their character can't sustain it. Y'all, you don't have to be a Christian to know that the historical landscape of Christianity in America has been routinely marked by nationally known leaders that have been exposed and caught in despicable and morally repugnant sins. Right? We chatting? Like people that lead hundreds of thousands of Christians caught in adultery and prostitution and drug rings. And what is happening? Well, in the exchange of life and all the things that are happening, their influence grows higher than their character can sustain. And they become guilty of what the Bible would call hypocrisy, acting as if we are more mature, more spiritual 
than we really are. Wanting people to think of us in a way that does not truly reflect the internal reality of our hearts. That is the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, right? So from money schemes to, you know, all sorts of things. And, and from Pentecostals and, and those uh, leaders that have been outed in such uh, things, you know, there's no denominational boundaries there, right? Like Methodists, Pentecostals, Baptists, <laughs> that no denomination is safe from, from this kind of corruption of hypocrisy. So this brings up another idea that we mentioned earlier that we need to come back to. We're going to continue coming back to this through the book of Acts. There is no single event in the life of a Christian, be it a miracle or a commitment or an experience that you can point to yesterday as a safeguard against sin and hypocrisy today. Can I just let me say that again? There is no single event in the life of a Christian, be it a miracle or a commitment you made or some experience you had that you can point to yesterday that safeguards you against sin and hypocrisy today, right? So let's take the early church. Miracles are happening, right? Y'all have revival. Y'all thousands, thousands, thousands of people. Holy Spirit, more contagious than, you know, COVID, whatever. Real, visible finger of God in the community over and over. Undeniable miracles are happening, right? So I've been a Christian for a while, okay? I've seen my share, my fair share of friends leave the faith. Okay, I've seen Plenty of people walk away from Christianity. I've also have friends, 15, 20 years, that are still pursuing, still seeking, still chasing after Jesus. And I have sat down before and thought, what is the difference? Like, how come I have this whole handful of friends that we started off strong and they're gone, just abandoned the church, abandoned their faith. And then I have these other friends that are still doing, I've tried to locate, like, what was it about them, man? Like, what's the secret, you know? <laughs> how, can you, how can you stay the course for the long haul, right? And so for a while, I was like, you know what? I think, I think, to, I think it's experiencing the Holy Spirit. I think, some, I think this group, I think they just had like miraculous things happen to their hearts and lives. And maybe that's just kind of rooted them in it. And they're, so they're staying the course. And maybe these guys that left, maybe they just didn't have those kind of things that happened, right? The only problem with that thinking is the Bible. So let's think about this. Look at, look at Exodus, Talk about the finger of God, right? Like plagues, Egypt, like you see the ocean open up and armies come in and whoa, God's just doing stuff over and over, Passover. Think about the Exodus. And a couple chapters after all of these amazing Holy Spirit, miraculous experiences of the, of, of the people of God. And what are they doing a couple chapters later? Making a cow out of gold, having an orgy and worshiping a cow. Uh, you think if anyone is going to have a Holy Spirit miraculous experience and be changed for the rest of their life, it's them, right? And yet a couple of chapters later, they're having this insane orgy worshiping a cow. And so you say, okay, Chris, well, that was the Old Testament. New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit. New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit, right? Well, it didn't stop these fools from lying. We're like, oh, well, Ananias and Sapphira didn't have the Holy Spirit. You see, they, they didn't. Okay, well, I mean, maybe. But are you suggesting that if you have the Holy Spirit, you then can't lie? Are you suggesting that? That the baptism of the Holy Spirit somehow bars you from ever fibbing again? Because I'm gonna be honest, I've had some pretty amazing experiences with the Lord. And the other day I told my kid not to poop in the pool because it'll attract sharks. (laughs) So do I not have the Holy Spirit? He believed it. He went in the potty. Right? Nah, dude. Scripture is like real life, y'all. 
Scripture is like real life. It's not these neat, clean categories just fit into this system of thinking that we can all just, oh yeah, we all know how it works. No, dude, Scripture's like real life. There's things that confound us that don't fit into categories, right? And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is just like that. It's like real life. It doesn't just, boom, change you and nothing. You're just different. All, you know, like I get baptized in the Holy Spirit. My wife uh, uh, submits to me. My kids obey me. That's not real life. What we're going to find out in Acts is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the regeneration of your character are two distinct different things. You can be baptized with the Holy Spirit, filled with him, experience signs and wonders and leave the inner reality of your life unchecked by the Holy Spirit. You can put up boundaries, y'all. So we say here all the time, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman and that he won't force anyone to be with him who doesn't want to be with him. And yet here he is striking people dead. So there is some nuance that we got to sit with. Who is this God? who we think we know, and yet can surprise us with crazy, insane things. Sorry, getting off my notes. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that is done to you. Jesus does that, y'all. He said he would baptize with the Holy Spirit, didn't he? Yeah, he does that to you. Something is done to you. The regeneration of your character, that is something that you participate in that you have to choose to, why else would it say in Galatians, keep in step with the spirit if you didn't have a part to play in that, right? Suggesting that this whole thing's a journey. You gotta put one foot after the other, after the other, and that's on you. So we often think that there's some sort of miracle, crazy, magical safeguard if we've had miraculous experiences and then we're no longer susceptible to sin or hypocrisy, and that's just not what we find in scripture. There's nothing no miracle, no supernatural experience that you can point to five years ago and say, oh, I'm just coasting on that now. Doesn't exist in the Christian life. You can't coast, y'all, you can't coast on obedience from 10 years ago. It just does not work, okay? That's why scripture's full of warnings. Now, I can't sit all day and look at all the warnings. I'll give you two. Jesus in Luke 12 said this, watch out. Hypocrisy is like yeast. Only takes a little bit. Yep, just a little bit works its way in, slowly, almost imperceptibly permeates the entire thing. He says hypocrisy is like that. In other words, don't tolerate even a little bit because you think, oh, that's just something no one notices. And he says, no, it's like yeast. Just takes a little bit. And it gets in and it slowly, imperceptibly permeates the entirety of your being. That's how hypocrisy works said Jesus. So he said, look out, watch out. So that's one Hebrews three says, look, man, don't stop encouraging one another. As long as it's called today, lest the deceitfulness of sin harden your hearts, right? So, I mean, we can't spend all the time over and over and over and over again, scripture warnings about this, warnings about this, right? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Therefore, y'all, it is a constant and continual ethic of the Christian to be participating in confession, repentance, and pressing into faith. We must have a continual ethic of confession, repentance, and pressing into faith if we are gonna walk this journey. If you ask me, the people that are still Christians with me that have been walking with me for 15, 20 years, what I can only locate is a continual ethic of confession, repentance, and pressing into faith over and over and over again. You know what that looks like? Failing 
over and over and over again and saying, I'm still gonna pursue. I'm still gonna get up. I'm still gonna seek, right? That's all I can point at. They just decided that Jesus has life and I'm gonna keep pressing into that no matter how much my flesh pushes back against me. No matter how many times I have to confess I'm a moron and I failed again, I'm just gonna get up again. And it's a continual choice that you have to make at every step of the way, lest, as Hebrews says, the deceitfulness of sin harden your hearts. An ongoing ethic of confession, repentance, and pressing into faith, right? The most easy thing to do in the Bible Belt, y'all, is drift into hypocrisy. It's the most easy thing to do, right? And not do the unseen work not do the internal work of letting God deal with your actual life, right? So wanna be known as Christians, wanna go to church, still wanna have Christian friends, we're still gonna watch online, we'll still show up, but I don't know why this dude's singing so loud in worship, raising his hands like a moron, right? I don't even know what's going on, right? The easiest thing to do in Christianity, especially in the Bible, is let the internal reality of your hearts deaden to the Holy Spirit, not be affected, hardened to God, right? Dead to his love, dead to his power, dead to his value, not being honest about your inner struggles, not being honest about your doubts, right? And pretend everything's okay. PTL, hashtag blessed, right? The ever present danger in Christian community will be this, that you learn the language, but don't allow the Holy Spirit to enter into the reality of your heart and life. You know what I'm talking about, learn, learn the language? I mean, how, I mean, how long does it take, right, to like show up to church and just figure out, dude, these people have a language. It's like Christianese, right? This is a whole thing, right? They don't tell stories. They give testimonies, right? They don't have parties. They have fellowships. So you start learning the language, right? You don't get depressed. You have a spirit of heaviness, you know? <laughs> you, know you know, Christians don't gossip. We share prayer requests. You learn the language, Right? You're not having a good day, you're having a blessed day, right? You don't, you don't, look, Christians, when you leave church, you don't leave, you get led, right? Oh, I just felt the Lord leading us, you know? If you don't wanna serve in kids' ministry, that's not my spiritual gift, you know? I think my, you know? There's a language, there's a language, right? And the ever-present danger of Christian community is learning the language, is fitting in on the outside, never allowing the Holy Spirit to enter into the internals of your work and thinking, Right? never allowing him to do the hard work of participating with him in the transformation of your actual character. Just learn the language, right? It's the ever-present danger, right? So listen, we talk about this a lot around here, man. I fight for honesty. I do. I try to be as honest as I can from this pulpit, man. I try to encourage you to be honest, right? But even in the early church, they, for some reason, did not feel the ability to say, man, I wanna be generous, but I'm greedy, I've got this unbelieving heart, this greed that's scared, I'm anxious. I'm, and, and why didn't they feel the liberty to say, man, this is what's going on in the internal reality of my heart? They didn't. Instead, they chose to pretend. Instead, they chose to put up a strong front that we're super generous and awesome and hey, we're getting around. I mean, why don't y'all, why don't we feel the liberty in, in today to pray the prayers that those who saw Jesus' ministry prayed, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief, help my, why don't we feel the liberty to pray prayers like that in church, right? Everyone's strong and awesome, has got to figure it out. Say my prayer all the time, help my unbelief, Jesus. Like the people who saw Jesus' miracles, that was a prayer they prayed. We have to have the liberty to pray honest prayers like that. If we're gonna grow as Christians, y'all, we can't hide behind this front, right? So 
Even in the most open, honest communities, we have to decide to fight against our own egos and fight for honest, open, vulnerable relationships, right? Fight against our own selfishness and anxiety instead of hiding it, dragging it into the light and inviting other people into that process as you bring that to God. Okay, so Tim Mackey uh, of the Bible Project overlays a equally as disturbing account in Leviticus 10 where two priests are in the temple and are struck dead by God for uh, disrespecting the spirit of God. And it's an interesting overlap, you see? Um, Maybe uh, the reason why in the Old Testament they started putting bells and ropes on priests that went into the Holy of Holies so they could drag them out if God strikes, strikes them dead. But Mackey's point is this, the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, now in this new age, right, where we ourselves are the temple, his Holy Spirit is to be taken just as seriously as back then. So it seems like a pretty good point, right? The idea that God's living presence now, instead of dwelling in a temple, dwells in us. We're, just, we're supposed to take that as just as serious as they did back then, and it has serious implications and consequences, primarily that our inner motives and inner hearts, now empowered by the Spirit, must now be set apart for God, just like the temple was to be set apart, right? So a bunch of cool overlays you can put. So in conclusion, what can we say <laughs> in light of this very disturbing event, okay? So in no way, do I think I've explained away the discomfort that many of us feel when we come to passages of Scripture like this, right? So I don't know about you. This text is a wrench in my theology. For example, like I said earlier, we often say around here that the Holy Spirit's a gentleman, right? He doesn't force himself to be with anyone who doesn't want it. We have to give him permission. Well, I mean, how does that fit in here? And this is something I just want to leave you with, uh, with, with this particular text, right? This, events like this and many others are one of those things that reminds us that we are not simply dealing with predictable laws and systems of thinking when we open the Bible. So what do I mean by that? Well, so often we approach the Bible like we would a science book or a textbook. Right? And we think it's laying out this very clear systematic way of thinking, which has neat categories. And something like this blows those categories up, doesn't it, right? What we are dealing with in the Bible is not merely an academic book. What we are dealing with is a spiritual being who does what he pleases, whether or not it fits in with our theological framework, Right? It's one of the reasons C.S. Lewis chose to make the Jesus figure in his children's stories a lion. Because he said, is he good? Yeah, without a doubt. Like his goodness has been made clear in creation through the history of the Jewish people, most clearly seen in the cross. He's good, right? But is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's a lion. I'll rip you to shreds, Right? It's like, can I control him? No, you can't control him. Can I tame him? No, you can't tame him. But is he good? Yeah, he's good. He has your best interest in mind. And at the end of the day, y'all, we have to make a choice, which is will we trust a powerful and mysterious creator God who's proven his love towards Christ, even though he does things that we cannot understand at times? That's the big question for me when we come to texts like this, right? Um, so let's stand and pray.